So we are inching closer to Easter, and we have been partaking of preparing our hearts through this Lenten series that we have called Curator, Repairing the Damaged Frames. We've been using the idea of a painting to illustrate the different portraits of Jesus as given in the gospel accounts. So here's where we have gone so far. We talked a little bit about the temptation of Jesus, that after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness, he affirmed his identity as the one that is called by God to carry forth the establishment of the kingdom of God. He overcame the obstacles that were placed in his way. Then we talked a little bit about the transfiguration of Jesus as he supersedes the law and the prophets represented in the vision of Moses and Elijah. Then we talked a little bit last week about the warnings of Jesus, and we talked a little bit about how many of the warnings that Jesus is talking about is what he's seen taking place in his own day. As the ministry of a prophet Jesus could see things were going wrong, and he anticipated the Romans not only invading Jerusalem, but also destroying the temple as well, which did occur in 70 AD when uh, the Roman uh, general Titus came in and sieged the uh, city for about three months and then finally uh, burnt down the temple. Now today, what we want to talk about is the parables of Jesus. And the way I want to do it, just to kind of know how I'm going to approach this message, is I want to talk first about the parables in general. So this applies to all the parables that Jesus gave. And then I want to come back to this one in Luke chapter 15. And I want to illustrate a couple of things by the portrait of three individuals that we just read out of Luke chapter 15. So Let's begin this idea of the parables first with the title that Jesus assumed. Those that were following Jesus, the initial disciples, often called Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. And so Jesus, as a teacher, was one that employed a variety of different techniques to get his point across. And one of the ways that he did that was through a parable And a parable usually was some type of illustration of the central theme of Jesus' ministry. The central theme of Jesus' ministry was about the kingdom of God. Now, whether we realize this or not, when we look at the parables, there's something to be said about the kingdom of God in the story that is being told. Now, here's the problem with the parables. Some of them are quite clear and some of them are quite mysterious. So when you read a parable, you might go, oh, I get it. And other times you might read a parable and you might go, what did he mean by that? So in general, the teaching ministry of Jesus could be explained both with simplicity and complexity at the same time. Let me show you what I mean. Sometimes his teaching is quite plain. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty straightforward. Then sometimes they are quite profound. He'll say things like, ah, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What does that mean? Then sometimes he's quite political in some of the things that he says. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. 
Now, the parables are these fictional stories. They're built within a context of the first century, but they're fictional short stories that at times can be very subtle and subversive. And they are intended to provoke us and to prod us and to cause us to ponder. Now, if you've ever listened to a song and you had that stuck in your head, have you ever had that little loop inside your head where you can't get that song out of your mind, you know? Sometimes a parable is intended to have a sticky point to it so that later in the week, those who heard that parable would ponder it again and again and again. So part of the problem that we have in the human experience is we are terrible listeners. Have you ever noticed that? We hear one thing, goes in one ear, comes out the other, and we don't remember. But these stories are such that they are intended to grab us. And when they grab us, it forces us to listen. Does that make sense? Okay. So how many of you have ever heard of the Bible Project? If you have never heard of it, uh, a Bible teacher by the name of Tim Mackey he and an illustrator has gone through all the Bible uh, books and has put together some short videos to help explain what those books mean. Well, there's also some themes that he has done, and parables are one of them. So if you ever want to look it up, just go to thebibleproject.com online. And here's the video that I'd like to show you talking about parables because I think uh, Tim Mackey and his illustrative artist uh, does a better job than I can do. So let's watch this. And even though it's kind of in cartoon form, it's not cartoonish. It's very deep if you'll listen to it, okay? Take a look. Jesus of Nazareth was a master teacher, and some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls, and when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree, and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but... What does it mean? Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now, there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. 
And you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside-down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right. Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit. But those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers, and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's going to punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people, not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right. He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground, but then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Okay, I hope that was helpful because uh, it, it did kind of illustrate the multi-dimension of parables. One thing to keep in mind about parables is the fabric of the parable is found in its immediate context, which includes culture and the circumstances of the day. But it does take some imagination to reflect upon parables, and you might say it's sort of like pondering a painting. This is coming back to this prop that we've been using in this series. 
When you look at it, you see certain things, but if you come back to it again, you will observe some other things. And so paintings in an art museum are such that it's not just to kind of quickly look at and pass on by, it is to constantly be looking at the intriguing color choices and shapes and the conclusions might be different among you as to how you observe the painting and see what it's saying to you. Art is always created to invoke a reaction of some sort. And usually that is the way these parables work as well. Now think about it for a little uh, moment. There are some things that seem to be ambiguous. And when we hear them at first, we don't understand what they're saying. So again, I'm going to show my age. I remember when Don McLean came out with the song American Pie. Okay, some of you who are younger might not know what that song is, but it's like 10 minutes long, okay? And, and you listen to it, and you go, what is that about? What is he talking about? However, it has held generations spellbound by each stanza because it tends to build and build and build. And the very last line of the song is, um, uh, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost took the last train to the coast, which was kind of an interesting image that comes in at the very end of the song as to what is he talking about? Well, you can now go online and look at YouTube and, you know, Don McLean explains some of that type of stuff, but I'm going to leave that to your own research. My point here is Jesus is an artist, and as an artist, he's willing to be mysterious as he uses vivid metaphors. Now, the thing not to do with the parables of Jesus is not to water them down. There's a huge difference between a complex painting and a paint-by-number portrait that you do on the side. You can tell the difference every time, right? So you know the difference between an artist and those that just would love to be an artist, but it leads a lot of, needs a lot of help along the way. So let's come now to this idea of the, the beauty of the picture of the kingdom of God it is revealed in a variety of ways, and it's drawing people to ask questions about what these things mean. So think about paintings just for a moment. Not all paintings are created equal. So you have artists, and these artists have multiple paintings, but there are certain ones that rise to the top. And the same thing is true with the parables of Jesus. Multiple parables, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, there's all kinds of parables that are told there, but some rise to the top, just like paintings. So if I were to ask you what are some of the best of the best, probably all of us would agree the painting of the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci in the Louvre in Paris, The Last Supper, by um, Da Vinci in Santa Maria del Grasse in Milan, Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, The Scream by Munch at the National Museum in Oslo, Norway, and The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. You see these paintings everywhere, all the time. They did other works. 
These artists painted a lot of other things, but these rose to the top and they captured the imagination because of their authenticity, their condition, their historical significance, um, the color, the subject matter, so on and so forth. So there's two parables of Jesus that rose to the top that everybody kind of knows. One is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the other is the parable of the prodigal son that we just read about in our scripture reading. So what is often missed, though, is why this story was told. So if you go to uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Here's what it says. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that is the provocative reason why Jesus tells these parables of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and the longest of them is the prodigal son. And this story is intended to, for us to identify with the characters that are being told in the story. Now, we might at times identify with the prodigal son because we made some unhealthy choices in our life. Other times, though, we are a lot like the older son that gets jealous of his younger brother when he returns back to the farm and his dad uh, embraces him. Harry Nowen, in his book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, asks us if we will examine each character in the story, and at various points he says, we're like the father, we're like the prodigal son, and we're like the older brother. And what we find is where we are in our point of life, we will often at times identify with one over the other. So maybe... When we were younger, we made some choices that identify with kind of the abusive decision that was made by the younger son who says to his dad, basically, I want my inheritance, you're living too long, I want it now, and he takes it and he goes off to a far country and he squanders it and he spends it on all kinds of riotous living. But there's this older son that was uh, compliant, There's this older son that always did what his dad said. And there was this older son that sees his younger brother coming back after squandering and spending all of his dad's wealth that was given to him. And he sees his dad going out to meet him. It's not like the prodigal son actually gets to the door and knocks on it. The father sees him on the distance and he tells his servants, he says, hey, listen, let's prepare for his homecoming because my son was lost. He is now found. Let's put a good robe on him. Let's put uh, sandals on his feet. Let's throw a party because my son has come back. Well, what does that do to the older brother? The older brother gets jealous and he gets mad and he gets angry because he's never done any of that. He's always done what his dad told him to do. And what we find is he has the inability to deal with the fact that his younger brother made some bad choices and yet his dad loves him unconditionally and welcomes him back. Richard Rohr says there is such a thing as human perfection, but 
that desire for human perfection must somehow manage imperfection. I think that's a great line. There's such a thing as trying to do everything right, but you have to understand how to deal with the imperfect along the way. And the older brother doesn't do that very well. He doesn't imagine a better world of his son coming back, his brother rather, coming back, and them being whole in the family together. Rather, he manages imperfection with uh, anger and resentment and all that type of thing. Brian McLaren, in his writing, says that the fact is we are all hypocrites to some degree. We're kind of like that older brother. We get jealous and mad and angry over things when actually, if we would appreciate God's love and acceptance, uh, that is actually making us spiritually healthier if we will do that. But that's a tough thing to do. And so what we find in this parable is uh, a point that is being made. So the, in the parable, the father represents God. God willing to accept those who have wandered off back. And it's also about identity. How does the younger brother and the older brother identify themselves? So we might say the prodigal son, at least initially, is cocky confident, arrogant, self-reliant. He knows what he wants to do, and he sets out to do it. But here's the problem. He makes a lot of mistakes along the way and finally finds himself feeding some pigs. He comes to his senses, and he says, I'm going to go back home, and maybe I can be like one of my father's hired hands. But his dad would not allow him to assume that role. His dad, when he sees him come, he says, put the finest robe on him and let's throw a party. In other words, his dad would not allow him to lose his identity as a son. Does that make sense? You are still my son. I love you. He wouldn't allow him to take on the identity of a servant or a slave. The elder son, on the other hand, kind of projects a small-mindedness a moralistic image of superiority that's derived from his own self-perceived sacrifice and service to his father. But in the parable, the father desires both his sons to be authentically who they are. The older son, when his younger brother comes back, says, that son of yours. So you notice in the parable, he never says this brother of mine. This son of yours, this is what he did. The prodigal son has to experience a major crisis before he can engage in self-examination that is required for him to become healthier and more mature and to adopt the role of his father as his son. So the prodigal son returns to his father humbled and his words are about to come out as a confession And the father will not even allow him to verbalize his confession. Isn't that interesting? The father just says, no, 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 no. You were lost. You've been found. And the father restores him to his identity. You see, the father states it correctly. The prodigal son was not living into who he really was. He got sidetracked. He got lost. And in so doing, he discovered his imperfection, his own humanity, 
and his need for family as well. And finally, he comes home. The elder son, not so much. He's still pretending that he's the great son. He's still pretending, even though he's full of anger, he's full of resentment, that the son, uh, his brother, the younger son, is forgiven. And so we see here that the older brother never really changes. The parable just kind of ends. And as it ends, what we find is he is still captivated. He is still handcuffed to his world of scarcity, not abundance. His world of judgment, not forgiveness. His world of punishment and not restorative grace. His life is still artificial. It's not authentic. He should have gone to his dad. He should have verbalized long before his younger brother coming home, what he was feeling. But he doesn't do that. He buries it. He swallows it. And a root of bitterness is in his soul. So both brothers have their issues, obviously. Neither neither one of them see themselves as they truly are, a beloved son of the father. And so what we find is this parable, primarily meant for the Pharisees, if you look at verse 1, because Jesus is sitting and eating with those that they don't want to identify with. So here's the Pharisees, those that are sinners, those that are tax collectors, those that are prostitutes. Those are the ones we're going to push outside of our circle. This parable is all about identity. We want to preserve our identity. We are the righteous ones. We are the favored ones of God. And what we find taking place is when when they realize Jesus is opening up his arms and he's inviting these individuals who've made a lot of mistakes to sit with him and to eat with him and to share life with him, then what we find is that the Pharisees got really mad because all the time of of them listening to the teachings of Jesus, they still insisted upon their own self-righteousness and they worked hard at it. But what they were doing is really showing their superiority over these other people rather than understanding that they had been privileged all along to live a kind of life that could bring them meaning and purpose, yet they got mad and they got angry that the Father has that type of love for his younger brother. So here's what I think this parable is all about. The parable of the prodigal son is really a story about the father representing the heart of God. And the heart of God is willing to accept all who will come to him. You see, the father says, all of this is yours to the older brother. I didn't need to throw you a party. You were already here, right? But he didn't identify in those ways. So here's, I think, the point. There's a message of radical forgiveness for those who have wandered off. There's the message of reconciliation for those that still need to get over their own sense of self-superiority and realize that the heart of the Father is to say to both groups, you are loved, you are valued, you are celebrated, you are accepted. So I like the way Richard Rohr, again, in his writing says this, in the Gospels, you rarely see Jesus upset with sinners, quote unquote. Rather, what you see is Jesus upset with people who don't think 
they are sinners. And that's really true. When you read through the Gospels, what you're going to see is Jesus is always upset with those that are religious because they never opened the table to those that were, they felt were beneath them. So would you take your liturgy, and I want to close with a quote from this book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming, and um, then I'll pray and then we will be done for today. This says by Harry Nowen, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I am returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional and about home as a place I am not yet fully sure of. While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will be truly welcome when I get there. As I look at my spiritual journey, my long and fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past and worries about the future. I realize my failures and know that I have lost the dignity of my sonship, but I am not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness, I project for myself a place far below that which belongs to the Son. Would you stand with me and... um, We're going to close in prayer, and as we do so, um, let this parable keep pricking at you throughout the week. That's what a parable is designed to do. It's to have a sticky point to cause you to reflect on over and over again. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you that we had this time together. We thank you for the teaching ministry of Jesus Thank you for the perplexing parables that when we ponder them over and over again, we have the opportunity to see points not only of interest, but of initiation to change and mature and become a healthier human being. So Father, put your blessing upon all of us as we continue to ponder the teachings of Jesus. Help us to reflect upon the heart of God the Father. May that bring us assurance and may it motivate us to continue to do the work of God, to pay attention to other people, to notice them, and to especially notice the people nobody else notices because you love all of us equally, you have proved it, and you have illustrated it through the sending of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you everyone for coming. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you real soon, okay? God bless.